1: Guaranteed.
2: Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So happy you could join me and my partner in crime, Paul Burmeister from NBC Sports, uh, for a pre scouting combine view at the world of the National Football League. I'm here in my apartment in Brooklyn. If you're fortunate, fairly soon there's going to be a cameo of chuck the dog right now he's drinking some water over in the kitchen uh but chuck may show up later on and uh believe me it would be your treat paul how are you doing
0: i am good peter hey you're thinking about combine time of year i had my annual physical this morning and i am one pound lighter and one eighth of an inch taller than i was 28 years ago at the combine so I'm feeling pretty good that about both is, things. That
2: is crazy. It's awesome. It's fantastic. Paul, can you tell me, let's go back to your combine experience. What year? 1994.
0: Okay, let's hear about it. Who, who was there? What was it like? Where was it? Was it in Indy? It was in Indy. And uh, I've been back so many times, Peter, since then. But I mean, it all, it all still looks the same. We were at the RCA Dome then, and they're at the at Lucas Oil now. But everything else, the hotels, everything looks just like it did in 1994. So let's go back to that year. There were uh, two quarterbacks in the top ten that year, Peter. I'll give you a hint. I see one from uh, Mount West Conference area, one from the SEC. Uh, both were in the top ten, yes. Wow. That wasn't the Dan McGuire year, was it? No, although Dan McGuire started his career at Iowa. Um, wow. um, so that year, 94, it was Heath Schuler and Trent Dilfer with the top oh 10 quarterbacks. God. So those were the guys we were all wow. chasing and, uh, they didn't work out, but I remember being in the elevator with them, you know, being around dinners with those two guys. Uh, my roommate was Gus Ferrat. We were the throwing quarterbacks that year, Peter. So we went early and stayed late through 10,000 balls. I'm still icing my shoulder from, <laughs> from all the throwing. We did that. that week. Explain but, to people what that is, Paul. Yeah. so obviously all the quarterbacks uh, get invited to go work out for a couple days, get physicals, but a couple of the fringe quarterbacks guys that were, you know, maybe the last ones invited and that you know, certainly counts for Gus and I that year, they get asked to come early and throw all the drills to the defensive backs, to the running backs, um, you know, hold for all the kickers and then stay late and do, do the drills for the linebackers as well. So, Every football that needs to be thrown at the combine outside of the ones for the quarterbacks and receivers, there are two guys that go early and stay late. And back in 1994, that was me. Wow. And who were the receivers you threw to that year? So I threw to Derek Alexander, who ended up being a first-round pick at Michigan. I think also in my group, I had Lake Dawson from Notre Dame. Yeah. Uh, I think Lake was working for the Titans until maybe recently. I, I'm not sure if Lake is still yeah. in the business. Didn't he get drafted uh, but, by Kansas city? There you go. Yeah. Drafted yeah. by the chiefs. Yeah. Those two guys stand out to me. Uh, I don't remember the other receivers as well, but I, I threw to those two guys that entire afternoon.
2: Um, what's the pressure like for a player going
0: to the scouting combine? It was different then, Peter, because now everybody's seen it on NFL network. So even though there is a lot of pressure when you're there performing for your own draft stock, you've seen it pretty much your entire life at this point. Um, back when I went, I remember uh, my agent uncovered an old VHS tape from the year before of like Trent Green and Drew Bledsoe and Elvis Gerbach throwing uh, Mark Brunel as well. So I remember, you know, knowing a little bit what was coming, but it was all a wide eyed, I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go kind of experience because it wasn't all on TV every year. So It was, there was a lot more mystery back then. It seemed like a bigger deal because I'd I'd heard about it, but hadn't seen it. Whereas now all these kids have seen every single drill they're going to do. They've watched it on live TV pretty much their entire lives.
2: You know, the story I always tell everybody, my vintage combine story in the year 2000, I would, you know, I've tried to remember over the years and I've asked a bunch of the old vets Uh, When Did You Start Covering the Combine? That was one of my first ones. Um, And I remember there was 15 or 20 media people there. And I think this probably would have been the same thing for you, but there was a hotel there, the Holiday Inn Crown Plaza. Yes. And that's where the base was for the Combine forever. And, and and I believe it still is. I think it's still a Holiday Inn. It's still there. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's still there. So um, so at that time, in the year 2000, with 18, 20, 22 media people there, and not TV people, it was just writers. <laughs> in those days, in that, that particular year, you basically did not have uh you did not have anybody arranging interviews or setting people up to talk to the press they didn't want the press there they you know the nfl and the people who put on the scouting combine national football scouting they didn't they wanted us far away so they gave us no help whatsoever so i remember in that year Sports Illustrated sent me out there and I was going to do a story on somebody. And I had a few ideas in mind of the people in that draft crop, but I ended up, my story out of that combine ended up being on Plexico Burris. And I, I saw Plexico, he's a distinctive looking guy, you know, as you know, very tall yeah, and, and he's got kind of a real thin face. And I, I mean, I knew what he looked like, obviously. And so I literally staked out the lobby of the hotel, and I waited, and one day, uh, I saw him walk out of the hotel, and I said, uh, hey, Plexico, I'm Peter King with Sports Illustrated. I wanna write about you in the magazine next week and sort of your future in the NFL. Uh, Any way you can give me some time? He said, yeah, sure. I gotta do this, this, and this. And so we arranged the next day he had a break in the middle of the day. So we were going to have lunch. We sat there. We had lunch at the Holiday Inn, Crown Plaza, for like an hour, hour and a half. And I wrote a story about him the next week. And it's so incredibly different these days. Like my big quarry this year, I really want to get Aiden Hutchinson. Yeah. And so, you know, he's the possible. First pick in the draft. We it's so early, it's almost two months away. And so you have to go through the agent and then the marketing guy. Yeah. And then they <laughs> present it to him and and all that. And I like my chances. We'll see what happens. And everybody is cordial. Everybody's very nice, but you know, like there, there are there are layers now. And you used yeah. to just go out and do it. You right. know? Yeah. Uh, so so anyway, but uh, that's interesting to hear. It's so, I, I, I tell people that, and I don't know how many people are covering it this year, but two years ago, which was the last year that the Combine was here, it was right before COVID. In fact, the last day I was there, last year, I went up to some general manager and uh, I stuck my hand out, like I wanted to shake his hand. And he, and he gave me a little fist bump. And, and he goes, eh, I'm a little worried about this virus. Mm. And that was about the first time that anybody even kind of made mention of it because we were hearing a lot about it. And then, you know, a week, maybe 10 days later, everything is shut down. The NBA stops and everything stops. But now, this year, I think. Is really going to be about the first year that football will kind of feel like it's mostly back to normal.
0: Right, right. Just sitting here thinking about the combine, Peter, a couple of other things come to mind. I remember when I was there in 94, right before I ran the 40 yard dash, I walked by Al Davis and, and he knew my name, the late Al wow. Davis. And I, I remember thinking, oh my God, Al Davis knows who I am. And just that. that pit of nerve excitement that I have from that. I can dial that up and remember it so well. And then 2005, uh, NFL Network, I I had just started there, Peter. I hadn't even been there a year. And we were trying to uh, see if if the combine had any, any kind of television traction. It was Mike Mayock and I on director's chairs on the field at the old RCA dome, just the two of us watching 40s, watching drills. And at the top of every hour, like three minutes before every hour, our producer would get in our ear and say, guys, we're going to stay on. Just do another hour. And it happened every hour. Like, I don't know how they knew, but they were they were getting a feeling that people might be watching. And uh, Mike and I just sat out there and talked about drills uh, for hours at a time back in 05. And then that next year, they made it the giant television production that it is and that you see on NFL Network. So um, love the combine, Peter. A lot of great, distinct, kind of unique numbers.
2: Don't, don't you think right now that Mike, Mike Mayock has to have withdrawal? <laughs> that he's not doing the combine for the next seven
0: days. I, I, I'm going to call him up here and say, my man, this is probably the first time in like 18 years you haven't spent the entire week at the combine for one oh, reason or another. Uh, he, yeah. he might be happy to not be there once, but yeah, it's uh, this was totally his thing. It.
2: I bet he misses it. I bet he misses it. 100%. I may, I may he reach it. out to him to do something for my column next week. It would be yes. Yeah. But um, hey, let's, let's go through the combine. And I should say to everybody... I know we've been reminiscing here, but (laughs) my guest later on in the podcast is going to be Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network. He's going to give you a really good meat and potatoes preview of this scouting combine. We'll talk a little bit about it, and then we'll get into some other things around the league, and then hang around uh, halfway through my conversation with Daniel Jeremiah, and I think you'll then be ready, if you care, I mean, there's a lot of people, I'm not the biggest combine guy in the world. Um, it's not anything where I my calendar revolves around it or anything like that. But I do understand and I recognize that it is sort of a tentpole now in the NFL calendar that everybody, for one reason or another, looks forward to. As a matter of fact, I told uh, Jeremiah, Daniel, when we were talking on Saturday night, I said, my favorite part of the scouting combine, quite honestly, I said, Mayock started it, now you do it, is when you spend seven, eight, 10 minutes of the doldrum times of the combine, where you're waiting for this to happen or that to happen or something, where you just say, all right, let's download what we think about the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. And then you just break down everything, what the weaknesses, their strengths, how their cap looks, what they're going to do in free agency, everything like that. And the reason why I really like that is that it kind of gets your brain to start thinking, okay, all right, yeah. You know, Tampa Bay, boy, Ali Marpet, that's a big loss and guard sixth rated guard by pff last year but it isn't only that the two other interior players center and guard are both free agents and they both could leave and in fact how about if all three of your interior linemen plus tom brady all of a sudden vanish and so that is what you start to think about with all these teams and i I told him, I really, really appreciate that. And his answer was cool. He said, you know, that that is a gigantic amount of homework for him. And, and I'm sure for Rich Eisen too, because then they're all going to talk about it on the set. But I'm going to start. I got three little bullet points about the combine that I wanted to hit you with. Number one, this will be probably... One of the two drafts in this century, century starting with 2001, is going to be the 22nd draft of this century. And this will be along with 2013 when EJ Manuel went 16th, probably the worst uh, you know quarterback year in the draft since then. To refresh everybody's memory, three quarterbacks picked in the top 80 that year. It was EJ Manuel at 16. It was Geno Smith at 39. And it was Mike Glennon mm. at 75. And so this year, it's not going to take until 75 for the third quarterback to be picked, I don't think. But it's a very, very lean crop this year. Mm. Obviously, Kenny Pickett, the pit guy, could be the first pick. Malik Willis from Liberty. Uh, has a chance to get picked high uh, as more of a project. Sam Howell of UNC. Some people think he's a borderline uh, first round pick. Um, and the old Miss guy, um, I'm drawing a blank. Um, Matt Corral. Matt Corral, sorry, uh, is, is also a candidate to go fairly early. But Paul, you watch college football a lot more than I do. Mm -hmm. What do you think of these guys? And do you think we'll see more than one team risk a one on one of these quarterbacks?
0: I think we will. I don't know enough yet to say uh, which two it'll be, but you know how this thing works, Peter. I mean, everybody wants to have a quarterback, and that desperation can lead to overdrafting at that spot, and I think it'll happen again. I don't know if it'll happen in the top 10, uh, but I'd be surprised if there weren't a couple quarterbacks that go. Uh, my specific thoughts right now, this early point, Peter. I saw Kenny Pickett play twice in person, and it's a credit to how much he grew this past season that he's being discussed in this way, uh, and how much it matters to a quarterback to be a three or four year starter because these kind of gaps of giant improvement can be out there. I mean, they're not that common, but they can be had by guys with a couple of years experience and some nice talent. They can take that last year and run with it. That's what comes to mind first. But when I watched him, Peter, I. I didn't once think hey this is a future first round pick and I didn't see him play much this last year but I saw him play earlier in his career and it's it again it says a lot about how much he developed and it says a lot about this class as a whole if Kenny Pickett is the best guy out there I, I think that's a terrific example for what you're saying you're you're correct to wonder how early one might go and if there might even be a couple go in the first
2: I also thought it might be interesting to, to discuss a little bit about, you know, there's a bunch of teams in this draft that, that obviously the, this is a very big draft for. And, you know, living in Brooklyn and being surrounded by Giants and Jets fans, you know, I don't want to break it to them. They're all excited. They both got two picks in the first 10 picks. Uh, the Giants picked five and seven. You remember last year, they got the Bears number one when the Bears moved up and gave this year's one to the Giants so they could move up and get Justin Fields. And the Jets have picks number four and 10. The 10th pick is Seattle's. And Seattle traded uh, their 2022 number one as part of the package to get Jamal Adams. But the thing I was going to say is, man, it's great to have two picks in the top 10. You can really help rebuild your team, but man, not a great year to have two picks in the top 10 because you know the top of this draft is not laden with absolute can't miss guys. And, and in fact, I think it will not surprise me at all. And that's one of the things I'm going to look at when I go to Indianapolis later this week. I think at the very least, the Giants might look to move one of those picks to try to get a, a, a decent to high pick next year in the first round. And there's a method to my madness. Uh, next year, the quarterback crop is going to be significantly better. The Giants will not uh, pick up the fifth-year option, I don't think, on Daniel Jones, the quarterback. So basically, this is Daniel Jones' year, to sh- and he could. He very well could to show Brian Dayball, he should be the quarterback of the future. But, you know, you look at Daniel Jones, it's his fourth year. He's going to be in his third different offensive system. His head has got to be spinning, learning a new system again. Um, So to me, this is going to be a really, really interesting year for a bunch of teams at the very top of the draft. And I wonder, Paul, when you hear that, It's not a great year at the top of the draft. And you're one of those teams. I mean, is it logical to think about trading, even though there may not be a great market for teams wanting to trade up?
0: If you're in that top 10, though, especially like the Giants feeder, if you have a couple picks in the top 10, let's say you're down there in the six, somewhere down between six and 10. There could be, there will be uh, multiple examples of the number one player at a position on the board. And you know how this works. Some teams will have him valued a lot higher than the Giants do or the Jets do. There's still some pretty good trade potential for the number one player at these positions. So right. even though maybe as a whole, it's not a wonderful class at the top, I bet there's still be, there, there'll be some teams that really want that top player at that position. So I think they could trade it. And even though there's not a great feeling about quarterbacks right now, there could still be some really good players that are worth pick six through 10. And Hey, the giants could use a number of positions. I mean, outside of the quarterback discussions, which certainly fit for that team. I, I, I don't think it's that bad of a spot to have two picks that high. I think it could work out pretty well.
2: I think the jets uh, are really an intriguing team this year. And we'll get into this a little bit before the draft starts. They're the, uh they uh they are a team that has four picks in the top 38 remember they got seattle's pick in the first round and a lot of people don't remember this but they also have carolina's pick in the second round and that comes from the sam darnold trade a year ago excuse me and if you were the jets right now um, you're you start to get in what what I really think about is kind of the treasure trove area of the draft because you'll hear a lot of the draft experts say this Daniel Jeremiah gave me a great line that one team's 15th player in this draft is another team's 40th and um, and and it, and it you know, it's, it's one of these years that it's a beauty in the eye of the beholder draft. I mean, in, in, in essence, a lot of drafts are like that. But the Jets uh, right now go 4 10, 35, and 38. They're really in the best position of any team, you know, in this draft. Philadelphia is in really good position, uh, but they don't have an exceedingly high pick. They go 15, 16, 19, and then they don't go again until 51. So those are teams that I think, um, you know, are obviously going to be in position to really buttress some of their huge need positions. There's one other team in this draft and, and I think is in an absolute total sweet spot of this scouting combine. I want you to follow me on this a little bit. The Baltimore Ravens pick 76th in the third round. That's their pick is right in the middle of the third round. Um, So they pick 76 in the third round. Then they also have what I think is going to be about the 98th pick because they're going to have a pick from um, David Culley. Remember the the NFL rule last year that every team uh, that had a minority coach or general manager hired uh, from them, they get two third round picks for developing that coach and sending them on to be a head coach or a GM. So they pick, uh, you know, around 78 and then 98, 99 with a, uh, compensatory pick right in there at the end of the third round. But then after those mid and low third round picks, they have five picks in the fourth round. And so if you think about this and you think about the position that the Ravens are in, they basically are going to have seven picks where guys like Daniel Jeremiah says, You'll find starters at tight end, at safety, in the interior line, uh, even at wide receiver. You're going to find players right in that what in essence is about a, a 50 pick range for the Baltimore Ravens. They're, they're going you know they're going to have seven picks right in there. So I think they're a little bit of an under the radar team as a team that really could get rich in this draft, Paul.
0: Yeah, I would imagine, uh, knowing this guy fairly well, that the Ravens general manager, Eric DaCosta, is probably more excited about those picks than some teams pick into the top 10 right now. Because, I mean, whether it's the Ravens, the Rams, the Bengals, I mean, these teams that do well, if you actually go look at their depth chart, it is loaded with, with picks from rounds three, four, five, undrafted free agents. Every team has a ton of those. I mean, thinking about the third round for the Ravens, I think they got Mark Andrews there. They might have gotten Duvernay there, who's a quality contributor on that team. So I am sure they are ecstatic about building the middle part of their roster, maybe finding a star or two, but finding a bunch of quality starters with those picks that you just mentioned.
3: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped
1: this charming devil. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people, guaranteed.
2: You know, I made a little list of these because I was going to write about this further in my column, but I decided to wait till closer to the draft because it's not really a combine story. But <clears throat> I want you to think of the guy, of the people that the Ravens uh, have picked in the draft after pick number 70. Okay. Defensive tackle who they really rely on right now, Justin Matabuike, um, uh, who's coming off a bit of an injury plagued year, but, but, you know, a really valuable player for them. Uh, Then you go back, as you said, Paul, to 2018, Mark Andrews and Orlando Brown, Mm -hmm. both uh, were picked in the eighties that year. Then you go to, uh, You know, 2016. If you look deep into that draft, number 146 overall, seventh or fifth round pick, Matt Judon. Um, then you go the previous year to that, Zadarius Smith, 122nd overall. Um, and you keep going back and back, and you over and over again you see this team, Kyle Yuzchek, 130. Ricky Wagner, 168. Over and over again, you see why the Ravens, look, I'm just telling you because I've I've talked to some people there, they are rubbing their hands in glee right now. They are so excited about this draft. This is going to be a real long-term crucial day for the Baltimore Ravens, or crucial weekend for the Baltimore Ravens. So... Let's leave that, we'll get into that probably a little more closer uh, to the time of the draft. But I also wanted to talk about uh, some news uh, that happened in the hours before we're recording this as we record on Monday afternoon. Kyler Murray's agent, Eric Burkhardt, uh, an absolute staunch advocate for his guys. Uh, Eric Burkhardt came out with a statement a long statement, and you read between the lines, and you don't have to read much between the lines. They are not happy with the status of negotiations uh, with uh, their quarterback, Kyler Murray, after finishing his third year <clears throat> with the Cardinals. And, and uh, they seem to be really pushing to try to get a deal done for, their, for his client, Kyler Murray, in this statement that he issued. Paul, I'm going to ask you just a, a very, you know, a direct, blunt question. Your call, what do the Cardinals do with Kyler Murray? Pay him or make him self-prove himself one more year after an up-and-down season he just had? I think I think you make him have a
0: prove-it-year, Peter. And follow me here on this one. I think when, when Steve Kahn, general manager, when he sits down with all his people and all the coaches – I think they feel very good about the direction this is going. I mean, there's a lot more reason to feel good about Kyler Murray than to doubt him. When you list the positives next to the negatives, the positives are a lot more. However, there is a, there's a negative there that's a repeating pattern that's really disturbing if you're talking about paying him $30, $40, 50000000 million a year, whatever it would be, to, to pay a young quarterback each year for the next few years. And that is the end of the seasons for, for Kyler and for the team have gone this way instead of up and that's that's a pattern that has to be attached to the quarterback uh, last year they started out great they finished up two and five when you boil it down even more they lost a pair of divisional games super important divisional games to end the year last year and the offense didn't play that well uh, this year I think they're seven and oh at one point they lose yes. five of the last six games and I know he was hurt But this this is part of what happens to a quarterback. You either play well when you're hurt, like every other quarterback in the NFL or every other player in the NFL in December, or you don't. He didn't play well down the stretch. They lost five out of six second year in a row. His worst game, his worst moment was the biggest one in the playoff game. So I think you feel good overall, but you cannot ignore the way the last two seasons have ended. They've ended poorly and the role he's played in it. And I think for that reason, in that reason alone, You need to see one more good year where December and January are a strong finish instead of a negative finish before you roll out that giant contract.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I feel a little bit the same way about almost every one of these young quarterbacks that you have some questions about, you know, like Baker Mayfield. Um, I feel the same way, even though I'm more worried about Mayfield probably uh, than I am about Kyler Murray. But honestly, if, if, if I were Murray and I were Eric Burkhart, the way I would do it is, hey, we're happy <clears throat> to have this year be a prove it year. Let, you know, let's do it. Because <clears throat> if Kyler Murray signs now, I think he's going to leave some money on the table that he might regret if he truly has confidence in his ability, I would play out this year. Remember the the Joe Flacco season in 2013. Remember when he said, yeah, I'm going to put it all on my shoulders and I'm going to put all the pressure on me. I'm going to bet on myself. I think he said, I'm going to bet on myself 50 times that year in training camp When whenever he was asked about it. Hey, I'm betting on myself. I'm going to bet on myself. And so they, you know, he, he thought that he could have a great year. And he had a good year. And then he had a great postseason. Remember that postseason run yeah. where he starts it? Uh, you know, they win one game uh, at home and then they have a divisional game six days later on a short week. They play five and a half quarters in Denver when it's 20 degrees. And they end up, he ends up throwing that, uh, you know, that bomb to end up putting them yeah. in great position to win the game in the in the second overtime. Hey, look, I think if I were Kyler Murray, I'd bet on myself. That's just me. But <clears throat> because I honestly think, I don't know how you pay Kyler Murray $40 million a year right now. I, I just agree. I just, I think it'd be really hard to do. Now, maybe you put in some, uh, you know, some incentives in the contract based on things like, you know, uh, what you achieve in 2022 or what you achieve in 2022 and 23. I don't know, but I'm a little bit hesitant to go nuts on Kyler Murray. And I think, I think we, we probably agree there. Um, Two other issues that I wanna get to you before we get to our guest, Daniel Jeremiah. So I'm really curious. There's such a wide variety of opinion on the overtime rule. And Judy Batista of NFL Network on Twitter reported uh, some stuff on Sunday, um, I think from Indianapolis, if if I'm not mistaken, because the competition committee began meetings there today. Uh, their annual off-season meetings uh, at the combine, and Judy Batista reported that they are going to look both at postseason alone and then for for all games to see if they could reach an agreement about the possibility of changing the overtime rule to allow both teams to be guaranteed a possession in overtime. And Paul, as you know, over the last decade, since since this rule has been enforced, that if you score a touchdown on the first possession, the game is over. Uh, There have been 12 playoff overtime games. The team that won the coin flip to start overtime has won 10 of those 12 games. And the team that won the coin flip to start overtime scored a touchdown on the first possession in seven of those 12 games. So the second team never touched the ball in seven of those 12 games. And two teams, two games just really come to mind, probably do with you too. Uh, The AFC championship game following the 2018 season where both Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes were out of control hot as firecrackers. And it's 31-31 at the end of regulation. The fourth quarter was so crazy. 38 points scored, I covered the game. The Chiefs scored 24 points in the fourth quarter. And everybody, I remember everybody in the press box, I've never ever been at a game or watched a game where I felt the coin flip was so important because both defenses were like paper mache that day, especially late. And the Patriots won the coin flip, scored on on the first possession of overtime. And then that was the end of the game. And then of course this year, divisional round again involving Kansas City, maybe karma said, okay, you guys get the benefit of the coin flip this time. Uh, The Bills lose the coin flip to start overtime. The Chiefs win it, or the Chiefs get the ball first. And obviously, they go down, score a touchdown, and they win that one, I think 42 to 36. But anyway, I only raise that to, to give you, to set the stage for let's hear what you think about what should happen either regular season plus overtime or simply a regular season plus postseason with overtime or just postseason? Should there be a change? Should it stay the same?
0: I think I'm in the minority here, Peter. I mean, you and I have talked about this a number of times uh, on, on the podcast. I've, I've read your opinion, and it seems like most conversations that I come across, people really want or desperately want this rule to be changed. I don't really mind the way it is. And it, it's a startling number that you throw out there. It makes me rethink a little when the 12 overtime games in postseason and 10, 10 times the team that gets the ball first based off that coin flip wins, it makes me hesitate a little bit. Um, so in this moment, I'm, I'm with you. But when I've thought about it in the past and when I've watched these games, I don't mind that the defense has to go out there and somehow make a play to give its team a chance to win. It doesn't really bother me, bother me that much. I wanted to see Josh Allen play more football last month when they lost in Kansas City. Uh, but as a rule, um, this isn't my hot button topic for the competition committee. I mean, I wish they would let defensive backs jockey a little more for the football and let the rushers hit the quarterback a little more. I'd rather see that be a priority than the overtime rule. But again, I know I'm in the minority. I think most people feel the way you do, uh, even though I'm not. I'm not that dead set on. I have to see a change.
2: You know, obviously, I feel differently. I think that. Um, that you can say whatever you want to say about play defense and a defense is equal part of the game and all that. But if it were so, I don't want to say meaningless, but if it were so much uh, without an overbearing uh, degree of importance on the game, then why doesn't anybody ever choose to play defense to start overtime? Yep. Nobody does that. I think the last, I think, and look, I go back to um, Rod Marinelli did it once when he had a bad team in Detroit, and they were playing a game. Man, this really dates me. They were hmm. playing the Bears in Champaign, Illinois. Oh wow! And when when, uh, when the uh, <clears throat> when Soldier Field was being refurbished, and he chose to kick off, to start overtime, and the Bears went down and won the game. Um, not a fine moment in Marinelli's history, but hey, he didn't, obviously, he didn't trust his offense at that time, but, but I just think in general, I just want more of a fair fight.
1: I, fair. I, yeah. I, I
2: don't know that I would do it, I would want to do it without changing one other rule, which is If the first team scores a touchdown, then the second team uh, is required when it's, if it scores a touchdown to go for two and you either win or lose on going for two. And that to me would allow you to have some real thought about whether you would want to take the ball first or second in overtime. I think most teams, if they do change the rule, most teams would wanna have the ball second in overtime because then they're gonna know exactly what they need. If the first team doesn't score, then the second team, all you need is a field goal to win the game. But I'm, I'm encouraged because I talked to somebody pretty high in the process about a month ago said, usually takes two, three years for there to be enough momentum to change a rule like this, and there still could be, they still mm-hmm. could need that much time. But right now, to me, it appears as though uh, it appears as though there's momentum building to try to make a change, at least for overtime. Paul, you said something that really clicked in me. I listened to, uh, I as a matter of fact, I watched uh, Chris Sims unbutton last week. Where you and Chris were talking about some of the calls in the Super Bowl. And, you know, I had one problem with Chris's discussion because basically Chris thought that the Logan Wilson uh, holding call in overtime was a good call. Okay. And I absolutely didn't think it was a good call because. I still have not seen absolute evidence there was holding. I saw evidence that he had his hand on his shirt, but I didn't see evidence that he had a good grab on his shirt. Be that as it may, be that as it may, the whole point is if you're going to say while the game is going on that, man, this is a crisp game. This is really being played well. And the, the refs aren't trying to own this game and everything. Then, then, then you can't say on a play like the Logan Wilson play that it absolutely should have drawn a flag. Now, I don't know whether Chris thought in the first half or like in the first three quarters when there are a total of four flags thrown in 45 minutes. I don't know whether he thought that was good or bad. Most people really liked it. But the fact is, you know, and I think this is without any debate, without any doubt, The fact is that most people believe that officials have made themselves too much a part of the game in recent years, that there are just too many flags. And so if you think that the first three quarters of that game were played uh, at a crisp pace and you didn't mind uh, some of the ignored calls... And I don't even mean the the T. Higgins grabbing of the face mask of Jalen Ramsey. That, of course, that was missed. It should have been a call. That's the only thing that bothers me about what Chris said, because, in my opinion, I would guess that there were 20 calls that weren't made in the first three quarters of this game that were more egregious than what Logan Wilson did to Cooper Cup.
0: Yes. uh, Thinking about Logan Wilson, third round pick, by the way, we were talking about third round picks in the AFC North earlier. Uh, Bengals have done a good job there as well. But uh, Chris was convinced that Logan really got a strong hold. I I believe it was Cooper Cup and really kind of prevented him from going forward. I I don't know if he actually just touched him or really forcefully grabbed him. Uh, But in the bigger picture, Peter, I am with you. I like it when the refs don't make those kind of calls. Uh, It's kind of like going for a rebound in basketball. There's going to be some contact. There's going to be some pushing around, some jockeying. And I would like to see them, uh, the refs being, I'd like to see the refs allow the players to get away with a little bit of that instead of calling it, uh, you know, to to the letter of the law every single time it it gets old. Hey,
2: Paul, last thing. I, I wrote a little bit in my column this week about how, uh, how the, the TV landscape is kind of going crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Troy Aikman, as I, as I said, he basically made $5 million or $4 million less combined in his three Super Bowl seasons quarterback of the Cowboys than he'll make to announce 20 games on TV this year. Yeah. So uh, it's a good time to be a network TV broadcaster. And when I asked this question, I got a great letter last week from one of my readers, Stephen McGinnis of of Evansville, Indiana. And, And here was his line. Do networks actually expect that this will result in more viewers, meaning the increased money paid to analysts? And he says, in watching the NFL for five decades, I have never once heard anyone decide to watch a game based on who the announcers are. Whoever is broadcasting the Super Bowl could pick mid-level Big 12 announcers, and they would have exactly the same number of viewers. And I just said, that's outstanding. I think it's perfect, because I don't know anybody who watches a game on TV. Now, I I will say this. I will say this. It's possible, possible, that in the days of John Madden, because Madden became such a feature of folklore, that in the days of John Madden, it could be that, you know, if it were, if Madden was doing Seattle, San Francisco, and there was a comparable game, uh, you know, on uh, whatever it was, on the uh, comparable AFC game, would some people have chosen to listen to Madden if they weren't a fan of any of the four teams? Possible. But I think the biggest issue I would say about all of this is that I just don't have much of an understanding about why money like this gets thrown around. And look, great for them. Uh, I'd much rather see the money in Tony Romo and Troy Aikman and Chris Collinsworth and Joe Buck and Al Michaels. I'd rather see it in their pockets than, uh, you know, some corporate uh, person you know in television but i really don't understand it do you
0: uh it's 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 crazy money and like you i'm all for it you know we're we're in the sports media business and when the guys at the top are getting paid that way i think i mean it's hey it's great for those guys uh, it's wonderful for our side of the business i think a couple thoughts come to mind number one Everybody thought, or a lot of people thought, that when Tony Romo got that kind of money a year ago, it was just a one-off, that it wouldn't affect everything. It right. is affecting everything in the number one booths for the, for the analysts, and I think probably for the play, by, uh, play guys as well. Uh, number two, I love that point that the reader brought up to you, the guy who wrote you the note or emailed you about, do they really think it's going to affect the numbers? And I don't think it, it will affect the quantity on a big game. I mean, your neighbor could have called the Super Bowl, Peter. We all still want to watch the game from start yeah. to finish. Yeah. It does affect the quality and the feel. And that there's this it factor that a lot of these quarterbacks have. I wish I could describe it to a T exactly what the it factor is, but there's a feel for the number one call. I mean, whether when I was seven years old coming in from the cold uh, to, to watch a game and I heard Pat Summerall's voice, it just felt better in my house that Pat Summerall <laughs> was calling the game. Uh, yeah. If I was on the couch on a Sunday in college, and Pat Summerall was calling the game with John Madden that whole afternoon felt a little bit better late in the day, because that's what, what I was hearing. Uh, same thing on Monday nights with Frank Gifford, same thing when, when Al Michaels makes a call. So I'm always going to watch, but that feels going to be a little bit better when it's one of those voices that you really know and trust.
2: Yeah. You know, the weird thing that I keep thinking of with ESPN paying all that money to Aikman, um, it's so odd to me that at the same time they're doing that, they've re upped Peyton and Eli yeah. on the alternate telecast. That whether they admit it or not, Peyton and Eli are chipping away at Troy Aikman's ratings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I know, really, really the craziest thing, I think. I don't know. Hey, but it, uh, it, it, before yeah. we go to uh, Daniel Jeremiah. I want Chuck to say hi to the audience. Bring Chuck Chuck in there. Yeah, where is this guy? Sit. Sit, Chuck. Okay. Here's Chuck. (laughs) And uh, Chuck is here. He hangs out with me while I work. He hangs out with my wife, Ann. And uh, he's really a fine animal. Uh, He doesn't listen that well. But (laughs) um, he's about 70% retriever. We got him from the Maryland SPCA about five years ago. He's six years old. He lived the first year of his life in a field in West Virginia.
3: Oh, wow. And
2: uh, so we've gotten really fortunate uh, that we've, you know, brought him to Brooklyn. We brought him to New York and he uh, he's not torn down the city or bitten too many people yet. So, but <laughs> he's still a little bit spooked. It, it, the funniest thing is, if I have him out for a walk in the neighborhood, and it's got to happen once a week, and there's a fire engine that roars past or an ambulance that roars past, Chuck will literally stop in his path, and he will compete with the siren, with the, whoo, you know, just like that. So uh, anyway, it's uh, it's it's kind of fun to have him around.
0: I would say this, Peter, we have now uh, two beings, two living creatures from West Virginia on on Peacock. You have Mike Florio and Chuck the dog. <laughs> we doubled I should the tell, amount.
2: I should, t- I should really tell Mike about this anyway. <laughs> hey, Paul, listen, thanks a million for everything, all year, all season, and this week, and uh, really appreciate your contributions
3: and making this sane.
2: Um, we're now going to get into my conversation. I had it Saturday night uh, with Daniel Jeremiah. Hope you learned something about the combine. Uh, he's a good storyteller and hope you watch him on NFL network the rest of this week. Here's Daniel Jeremiah. Daniel Jeremiah, I'm just going to ask you to start by by summing up how you see this draft, where it might be strong, where it might not be strong, and where are the positions of strength in this draft?
4: Well, that's a good question, Peter. I, to me, I, edge rusher is where I would start, and um, you know, with the one caveat being, we can we can just record my answer for this every year and just say wide receivers for the next twenty years, and just know that every year we're going to see a, a total a, a massive amount of wideouts every single year we see it. But pass rushers this year to me stands out just from the depth, you know, coming off the edge. You can go really, really deep. I just updated my top 50 and I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, six of my top 17 players, um, or six of my top 18 players are edge rushers. So um, it is a really, really deep group. Have you there. ever had
2: that many before?
4: I'd have to go back and look, but that's a big number. Um, yeah. you know, so it's it's really, really strong there. And then you've got some some other positions where I think there's um, there's a lot of depth, but maybe not that top end group. You know, I, I think when you look at the tight ends, there's going to be good tight ends. You're going to get the fourth, fifth, maybe even into the sixth round. I, I really like the running back group. Um, you know, there's no, there's no Adrian Peterson. There's no, you know, nobody that's going to, you know, have that debate. Do we take a guy in the first round or not? I don't think that's happening this year, but man, there's a lot of depth in those middle rounds at that position and tackle is, uh, is another one. I think that's pretty well represented both with some solid players at the top. Um, and then some really good depth all the way through.
2: Can you tell me why it seems to you that, and and whether it seems to you, that this is a very strong depth draft? I've heard you talk about how, you know, third, fourth, and fifth rounds, you're going to get some great players. You did your conference call the other day, and you had a great line that, you know, somebody's, and I'm going to paraphrase somebody's 15th player in this draft could be somebody else's 60th player in this draft, which is not totally rare, but you think that will be kind of commonplace this year.
4: Yeah. And I think we're starting to see more of that over, over the years where teams, you know, just in terms of how you evaluate what you value, I should say, um, determines how you slot these guys. It's, you know, it's a flavor draft. What kind of flavor do you want? You know, the receiver position is a great example of that. You want kind of the big power forward, wide receiver. Then you've got some of those guys, you know, with the Drake Londons and the Traylon Burks, or you want the the real speed guys. You know, you've got Jamison Williams, Jahan Dotson and Chris Olave or, you know, all big time speedsters. And then you've got kind of the in-between guys with with Garrett Wilson. I mean, that's just, that's just one position where you're going to have teams with orders all over the map. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. You talk to the teams that are picking up high in this draft, and there's almost a sense of frustration that you can get from them. And then you talk to the teams that are picking down in the bottom of the round, and they're pretty excited about what they're going to be staring at, what they're going to be getting. So it's it's a different draft from that standpoint.
2: You know, I was in touch with Les Snead today. I, I sent him a uh, uh, a few stats that I'm going to be using in my column on Monday. Um, Because I think one of the things that I really admire about the Rams is that they don't have any fear about getting rid of their ones and twos because they have drafted so well, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, after the second round. And and I'll just give you a little flavor of that because I want to hear if some team, you know, with more picks like in the middle rounds this year could kind of do a Rams thing. So I'll just give you a little example of what I'm talking about with the Rams. 12 players on their roster this year played more than 30% of the snaps. And those 12 players were drafted in the third round or later in simply the last five drafts. In other words, since Sean McVay arrived and you know, Uh, You know, two starting offensive linemen, David Edwards, Brian Allen, a safety Jordan Fuller, obviously Cooper Cup, you know, the 69th pick, the seventh wide receiver pick in 2017. Uh, Troy Reeder, undrafted linebacker, defensive tackle Greg Gaines, every time Aaron Donald opens his mouth about the guys around him, he says this Greg Gaines, he, he can't be blocked. Nick Scott, the safety who came in late this year and who at Penn State was really only a special teams player or or almost exclusively a special teams player, at least until his last year there. And so I just wonder, could we be getting into, could that be a little bit of a trend going forward that teams don't just fall in love with getting ones and Oh, we got to get into the top 10. I mean, unless you want a quarterback. But they just believe that there's a lot of depth at other positions. Do you see that or do you not think that that is happening right now?
4: Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I feel like with the Rams, we talk about the trades more so than we talk about anything else and they've they've traded and smartly so you, you know for quarterback, corner, edge rusher. So they're trading premier picks for premier players at premier positions. And you went through the list of players that they, you know, that you talked about outside the first round and outs, you know, in the middle rounds where they've hit on guys. Every year Peter, you can find wide receivers, safeties, linebackers, guards. You can find those in the middle rounds every single year. Yep. But man, if you're hunting for quarterbacks and edge rushers, those those are going to cost you. And usually it's going to cost you with spending a first round pick and drafting a guy, or in their case, you know, using some picks to trade to go get established veteran players. But I think that's kind of the genius behind what they've done, and that they've they've invested with draft capital and dollars in the premier players at premier positions. And then they're content and understanding the whole comp system to be able to say, okay, these middle rounds, we're going to find our linebackers, our safeties. We can find our wide receivers, um, and we're going to be, we have to be comfortable with the fact that when some of these contracts come up, they're going to walk away, and we're going to get comp threes and fours, and we're going to have to keep shopping for those things in those middle rounds. But I think it's, 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 a, nice, it's a nice way of doing things when you have the pillars in place, you know? but if you're an organization that doesn't have your quarterback in place, or you don't have edge rushers, it's hard, it's hard to hit on those guys, those premier guys at those positions outside of the first round.
2: You know, I like the fact that you, you you just bring up the receiver position, because to me, when I look at receivers, receivers are what I thought of running backs like five years ago. I, I've been on this: why in the world would you take a running back high? Yeah, I mean, because time after time after time, and it's not just in the Denver system, you know, that use the the, the low round picks, but if you consider how many really good wide receivers or, or, or at least usable good wide receivers. You know, and I'll just have been picked late. 172 uh, four years ago, Isaiah McKenzie. 149, Hunter Renfro. 128, Gabriel Davis. 112, Amon Ross St. Brown. And I just look at the depth of receiver that college football is producing and I say, hey, listen, unless you're Justin Jefferson, you know, I, I mean, who you absolutely chase. know yeah. Yeah. is going to blow you away early. I'm fine with waiting. I, I really am interested in your thought on that at the receiver position.
4: Yeah, I was gonna say you could just refer to it as the Old Miss rule because if you just go to Old Miss, if you just go to Old Miss wideouts in the second round, you come up with DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, and Elijah Moore. That's just one school what they've produced outside <laughs> yeah. of the first round. So yeah, you can absolutely find those guys. I would say when you, um, you know, the Bengals made the right decision last year, uh, taking the Jamar Chase's don't those guys don't come right. around very often. So you you don't pass up those. But I think you have to distinguish between those. You know, kind of where you are um but this is a draft and in saying that and i'm with you i think you can find those guys and this is a good deep draft but in this draft where maybe there's not as much certainty high in the draft and um you know you look at a guy to me like a garrett wilson who's you know i think is going to be an outstanding player who checks every single box and i think it's a safer pick man if you don't fall in love with anybody else yeah i wouldn't have any problem with the team doing that but but like you said you're going to get into the second third fourth round and it's not it's not something that's a recent trend. It's where we are. Every college in the country is playing with four four and five wideouts and throwing it all over the place. And every year we have just a, a you know, barrel of wideouts to choose from.
2: I thought it was really interesting when I did something in my column last week about Mike McDaniel telling Debo Samuel, who obviously was another lesser pick, not a low pick, but, yeah. but a lesser pick, um, and telling Devo Samuel, look, if you do everything I ask you to do work and, and, and all this stuff, you do everything, you'll be an all pro and I'll be head coach in the NFL next year. Wow. And both those things happen. Wow. I only bring that up because my feeling is that I think you have to know the personality and who these people are like, you know, Jamar chase, I'm fine after seeing who he is and sort of the tough guy that he is. And, you know, I've gotten to know Zach Taylor some, and I don't know Jamar Jamar Chase, but Zach Taylor goes, you know, he's the most competitive guy we got and, and all that. And I think that with guys like, Uh, you know, Jamar Chase and Debo Samuel and and Terry McLaurin Mm -hmm. and Hunter Renfro and a lot of these guys. I think tools are so common at that position that I'm looking for other stuff when I'm looking for wide receivers. So I want to ask you, give me your three or four receivers in this draft who've got some of that in them who've got some of the Cooper Cup, I will not be denied in him that is going to add to just his his uh, his football resume.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I'd give you my, my top three guys at the top of the board, fit that in terms of their criteria. Garrett Wilson, who plays a lot bigger in his size, super tough. You can watch what he does after the catch to see his competitiveness and his toughness. Drake London, who's just kind of a – he's kind of a bully. You know, there's been a big debate on, is he too tall? I I don't have any issues with him whatsoever uh, in that regard. I think you tell me
2: a little bit about Drake London. Yeah. This is like the first week I start talking to people around the league about the draft and, and I'm, he's on everybody's lips right now or everybody's tongue right now.
4: So, and this, let me go backwards before I go forwards. If you look at the guys last year uh, receivers and you look at the top guys in the league, I just pulled up the list. Cooper cup, Justin Jefferson, Devontae Adams, Jamar Chase, Debo Samuel, Tyreek Hill. Let's just look at those guys right there. You say, okay, what do they have in common? They're all different sizes. They're all different speeds. Those guys all have phenomenal play strength. Like that is that is a, a characteristic that I've been trying to search for now when I'm looking at these guys this year. Who, who is strong? Strong getting off the line, strong at the top of your route, strong going after the football, and strong after the catch. Um, and that, to me, Drake London checks all. A lot of those boxes in terms of what he can do. He's physical at the line. He's physical at the top. He wins 50 50 balls. Then after the catch, he's not a catch and fall down guy like he can he can run you over he can make you miss. Um, And everything from the school that you get is that the wiring is just outstanding like ultra ultra competitive. Uh, when we finish here, I'll send you a text of a, uh, of a dunk of trade of trade London's by okay. the way, uh, which I always love when I get the other sports stuff, but he was, you know, he played basketball at USC his freshman year. So he's, wow. he's a big time athlete. You
2: know, what's interesting about him that to me, and, and again, I haven't studied any of these guys really, but he, he only played eight games this year, right? Because yeah. he, he got a broken ankle. He's okay. Isn't he right now?
4: Uh, yeah, I don't imagine we'll be doing much at the combine. I would guess coming off that injury, but I do not right. know yet.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he he only played eight games, but eighty-eight catches in eight games. <laughs> and the other thing that's really incredible, PFF had a stat about him: nineteen con- contested catches. That's yeah. like two and a half contested catches a game. That that just that doesn't happen.
4: Well, the funny thing is, is I've had conversations. It's a glass half full, glass half empty. I've had conversations with teams that really love Drake London, and they'll say, man, he's got so many contested catches. And then I've talked to teams that aren't as high on him and go, you know, it's all contested catches. You know, he doesn't separate. So I'm like, you take the exact same nugget, the exact same <laughs> stat. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I, I tend to, to fall in the camp of loving what he does there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: How is Garrett Wilson different from him?
4: So Garrett Wilson has more juice. He's just he's gonna he's faster. He's more explosive. Um, He's gonna be a more dynamic route runner. I mean, just he can he's just gonna be able to get in and out. And uh, I'll send you another one of my favorite things. We'll show it at the at the combine, but uh, you got to go back and watch Garrett Wilson and his freshman year. You know, it's not just looking at these guys their recent year, but you go back to his freshman year. They're playing uh, Clemson. And he goes up and makes a catch on the sideline. Peter, that's as good a catch as any that I've, I've ever seen. I mean, he just can jump out of the gym. Wow. And he reminds me of Justin Jefferson in that I loved everything about Justin Jefferson. I thought he was, you know, the best route runner in that draft. I thought everything he did was really clean. The question was, oh, what about the top, top speed? Like, is he going to be, it was expectation. He might run in the low four fives, which is, you know, doesn't mean he's not going to be a great receiver. We see that with Devontae Adams and Stephon Diggs, all these guys. He goes to the combine and runs in the four threes. And it's like, well, okay, well that he's good there. And I've been told that Garrett Wilson's been, he's been training and running in the high four threes himself. So he's that's the last little hurdle for him. And, and, and I think you'll you'll be one of the easier evaluations in this class.
2: What about, you know, this is a guy who I only know by name, but Jameson Williams, I think coming into this year, you know, what I had heard is that he had a very good chance to be the best receiver in the class tears his ACL uh, in January. And I wonder, how do you look at Jamison Williams now? And do you believe he'll be able to play football this year?
4: Okay, I'm going to answer that question while you check your phone because I texted you the Drake London dunk. So I want to get the the Peter King reaction to that. Uh, But (laughs) Jamison Williams, if Jamison Williams doesn't get hurt, I think here's a real chance he's the first wide receiver that gets picked. Um, he's got rare, rare speed. And on top of that, I, he's somebody that you can actually see him run some routes and and drop his weight. Sometimes those super fast guys, you can be too fast, but you'll see him get to the top of his route. He can get in and out of breaks. He can do those things. Um, so I, I, I think somebody in the bottom of the first round is going to just take him and say, okay, we've, you know, maybe we have to sit him for half the year as he recovers from this injury, but it's a straight ACL. He should be back and be fine. And that could end up being one of the best value picks. In the time we have left uh, in our
2: podcast, I want you, if you can, to tell me a little bit about the very top of the draft. Um, It's one of those things that you hear, you know, maybe some people like Aiden Hutchinson, you know, the edge rusher from Michigan to be the top pick. Some people might like Kayvon Thibodeau uh, from Oregon to be the top pick. If you desperately need a corner, maybe you could fall in love with Derek Stingley Jr., uh, the LSU guy. But just give me your view on how you break down the absolute top of this draft.
4: Well, for me, and and just kind of putting together my top 50 and just updating that, I try and take the approach of uh, what gives me the best chance at success here. So I, I don't get too pulled by, okay, this is what they can be. And this is kind of that, that upside to me, if I'm picking up there in the top five, my team stinks. And I need guys that I know can come in and make a difference on my football team. So I'm trying to eliminate as much risk as I can while still getting a really, really good player. So when I factor all those things in, Aiden Hutchinson comes out at the top of the list for me. Um, and I don't want to insult him by saying he's just a high floor player. I mean, the gosh, the guy was a dominant player last year at Michigan. I think he's got a chance to be a double digit, you know, consistently double digit sack guy in the NFL. Now, does that, he's not the Bosa brothers. He's not Miles Garrett. He's not Chase Young. He's not those guys. Uh, but he's a really, really good player. And I think he provides very little risk. So that's why I put him at the, at the very top. And then right behind him, uh, Akeem Ekwanu from NC State. Uh, who I think is the best offensive lineman terrible, in the draft. Yeah. And he's yeah. also somebody that, you know, you, talk, you say, okay, well, where's the risk at? Now, there's some things he needs to clean up in pass protection. He's got it all, all the ability in his body. I think that's going to come. But I've also seen him when you watch him last year at guard, and I've seen him just pulverize people at guard. So I, I know this guy can play inside and be a dominant guard. That's the absolute worst case scenario for him. But, uh, you know, that's why I think he's another one who's who's got very little risk with him going forward. So he was to Kyle Hamilton. Um, there's a debate about safeties, you know, how valuable, how high do you take a safety? Are they difference makers? I, you know, I think in today's game, when you've got guys with that type of versatility and range um, and can be as dominant against the pass as he is against the run. You know, I see it with, with Derwin James doing the Charger games every week. You, those guys can impact the game in a major way. So uh, he's another one, again, very little risk. And then those are the top three. And then after that, the next couple guys, I get to Sauce Gardner for me is the best corner in the draft. Um, you know, I was around Chris McAllister. To me, I see some of those skills from him. Um, and then the next one would be Evan Neal for uh, for Alabama, who is, is not there yet but he's another one who's actually played guard. I think it was in 2019 and played that well. So you've got a fall back for some reason, but it didn't work. Um, but somebody that got better when I watched him at the, at, over the summer, then in the beginning of this year, the middle of this year, the end of this year, he got better each time uh, I was exposed to him and watching him. So uh, that gives me a lot, a, a lot of hope on, on him going forward. And when you're trying to figure out what the heck the Jags are going to do, man, that's the difference between stacking it for how I think you know of them as players is easy trying to climb inside the head of the Jags and, and what they're going to do with that first overall pick is a little more challenging.
2: Well, if you look at Jacksonville, you can either say, uh, we could get a franchise left tackle, which we really need or a franchise tackle on either side, which we really need. And then secondly, uh, you can also get a pass rusher to sort of uh, you know, to be a bookend to Josh Allen. Yeah. So, uh, and Josh Allen, I think, started to come on a little bit this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think he's got a chance to, To he's not going to be Miles Garrett, but I think he's going to be okay. So, so I, I think the Jaguars are in a pretty good position, a pretty enviable position. Just just the way I look
4: at it. Let me ask you a question then, because this is the hard part, right? Do, you know, evaluating them and giving your opinions one thing, but trying to figure out what these teams are going to do. So when I've tried to figure out the Jags, I hear everything you just said, but I'm sitting here saying, okay, if we fast forward a year from now, Peter, and let's say the Jags are five and twelve with a defense that's kept them in every game and the quarterback hasn't made much progress, or next year, the exact same record, they're five and twelve, and the quarterback takes the next step. As an organization, I think you would sign up for the quarterback moving forward, which is why I give him an offensive lineman with that first pick because they've yeah. got to get him up and going.
2: Well, and, and not only maybe giving him the NC State guy uh, you know, as the tackle right away, but with the 33rd pick, they can choose from you know, who knows. Yeah. There's going to be a very good receiver at thirty three. And if they're in love with somebody who's still there at 25, you know they can they can trade up. Mm-hmm. They got two fives, two sixes, two sevens, so they've got some ammo to do some stuff this year. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing here uh, on the podcast: it's I found your discussion when when I was listening to your conference call to be very interesting in this regard. A lot of people look at this draft as uh, <clears throat> who do you like better, Aiden Hutchinson, you know, or Thibodeau from from Oregon? You were significantly in Aiden Hutchinson's corner. Tell me mm-hmm.
4: why. Well, it's the elimination of risk. <clears throat> I, I think when you when you watch Hutchinson and you compare him with Thibodeau, I think. Number one, he's got more ways to get to the quarterback. Um, he's really, really polished. So he's got a, a lot of tools in his bag that I don't think Thibodeau has at this point in time. I think they both have a little bit of ankle tightness, which, which limits them. Um, so that's just as, you know, in terms of their skill sets. And then I would say he just plays harder consistently from, you know, from drive to drive, game to game. Um, I just, I, I don't see Aiden Hutchinson ever take a snap off. And I see it quite a bit with Thibodeau in just about every game that I've watched. So from that standpoint, I, again, I'm picking up there. Ozzy used to always say there's nothing wrong with doubles, you know, like just guaranteed doubles. And a lot of times those doubles turn into home runs. I'm just trying to eliminate as much risk as I possibly can.
2: Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, Okay. So um, NFL network is going to have uh, scouting combine coverage Uh, starting this week and continuing all week. The on-field workouts begin Thursday uh, with quarterbacks, wide receivers, tight ends. On Friday, it'll be running backs, offensive linemen, special teams. Saturday is a big day, linebackers and defensive linemen. And the reason I think it's a big day is that Hutchinson says he wants to do everything. And this is his chance to put a little exclamation point on him being the first pick in the draft. So, and, and, and one of my favorite things, Mike Mayock started it, you do it too, that I think is really fun about the Combine on TV is that at some point in your, I guess, 50 hours uh, of Combine coverage, you will take a deep dive into all 32 teams and what you think of them, what you think they need, where you think they might go, both in free agency and the draft, that's my favorite thing of you just giving the status report of every team in the league and I think that 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 really is a it's kind of a it's 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 a tease to tell everybody hey listen they they might be talking about uh they might be talking about the Cleveland browns at five fifty eight on Saturday <laughs> between. You know, defensive linemen and linebackers. So you better not turn it off. But, and, and, and I often think, I said this to Mayock once, you got to do more homework on the teams themselves than you do on these 336 players or whatever they
0: are.
4: Yeah. What's funny is it's not, it's, tr- it's like running a race on two different tracks because you're trying to, you know, study these guys, all the tape and all the hours that that represents. And then but then you've got to answer from the team side. That's why that's why I get my little handy dandy sheet right here. I've got all my teams. I've got all I've got free agents. I've got stats. I've got needs. Um, I've got all that stuff. A little front and back is my, my little crib sheet here as we go through these teams. And the best part about it, Peter, is I'm going to I'm going to have hours and hours of discussion uh, on TV, on podcasts, on radio interviews. Then free agency happens and it's all worthless because all these needs <laughs> and everything completely change.
2: Yeah well I I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's worthless but I say it really it does change <laughs> after free agency but you know but still I think you know I mean one of my favorite teams this year just to watch is the Ravens yeah. cuz they're going to have seven picks when you start at pick number I think 76 they have seven of the next 70 picks yeah. and knowing DeCosta general manager Eric DaCosta, you might make a couple more trades to give them eight or nine, but the, the Ravens really seem this
4: year to be in the sweet spot of the draft. It's, it's not only that, it's not just the ability to pick the players that they've had tremendous success with in those rounds going back 20 years. Um, they've turned those picks into guys like Calais Campbell, you know, like they, you know, Marcus Peters, they, they find ways to use those middle make round trades picks. And, yeah. They make trades and it's just, there's so many ways to build your team and acquire talent. And, you know, look, they've, you know, there's, there's a handful of teams that are just better at it than everybody else and utilizing the resources and the Ravens are, are one of them.
2: Daniel Jeremiah, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Peter. My thanks to Daniel Jeremiah of NFL network. Make sure you watch all 50 of their hours of the scouting combine hours this week. Um, I'm probably not gonna be doing that. But anyway, I'll be in Indianapolis. I'll be reporting on some of my thoughts back next week. Hopefully we'll have a conversation or two to share with you uh, from the combine, hopefully with a coach or GM or or someone uh, next week on the podcast. Anyway, thanks a lot for watching on YouTube and on your, uh, basically on any NBC Sports channel. Uh, And also thanks for listening, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll have some news on the combine in my column, Football Morning in America next Monday, and right here on this podcast next week. Have a great week, everybody.
3: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean...